you have your Bible with you today, and I hope you do, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you recall, this is a letter where the Apostle Peter, one of Christ's closest followers, details for us the essential basics of the Christian life and how we as elect exiles ought to live in this world for the honor and glory of God. And in our study of essential Christianity or Christianity 101, we have come at last to the topic of evangelism. Evangelism, one of the primary reasons why you and I still exist here on earth as elect exiles. We often forget it, but the most sobering truth in the world today is that the gate is narrow that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and those who are on it are many. That means that most of the people you know still need to bend the knee to Christ's saving sovereignty. This is the great task of the church in our world today. It is to call on men and women and children To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and the salvation of their souls. That's our purpose, church. That's our mission. I know I've repeated this many, many times. But we are not here on earth to engage in a home renovation project. We are here on earth as pilgrims and sojourners calling on lost men and women and children to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved and to become citizens of the kingdom of heaven which Christ will establish here on earth. And we need to be about this mission. We need to be about evangelism. And not just in the exceptional ways that we often think about it, right? The, the upfront, bombastic preaching in all these different ways. We need to be about evangelism even in our everyday lives. We need to be about the task of evangelism day in and day out. So it's not something that we only occasionally do. It is a mission that we're engaged in every single day day what does that look like what does everyday evangelism look like what is a life that is properly devoted to the lord jesus christ and bent around the mission of pointing people to jesus what does that life look like that makes disciples as we go about our everyday lives as matthew 28 19 says What we're finding out is that that type of evangelism, everyday evangelism, uh, is intended by God to be a natural byproduct of a normal Christian life. Where we live such a faithfully reverent and devoted Christian life that those around us who know us best are compelled to ask us for a reason, for the hope that is in us, and we give them the answer, His name is Jesus. That is everyday evangelism. And so, what we've been learning is that we as Christians can't ever divorce evangelism from our everyday lives. 
It is and it ought to be the natural byproduct of a growing devotion to Jesus Christ. And that was, that's what First Peter is showing us. It is often by making better Christians that God makes more Christians. For as we grow in our devotion to Christ, we grow in our declaration of Him. And if that's not happening, if people aren't noticing in us a compelling Christian witness, we need to ask ourselves why. And we need to go back to verse 2 of First Peter chapter 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk of the Word, that by it you may grow up into your salvation. And in growing, attract others to the saving Word of Christ that saved our souls as well. Well, one of the most essential virtues that we as followers of Christ need to grow in is the area of biblical submission. This is the first area that Peter addresses in verse 13 and following as the most distinguishing, attractive, and convicting trait in the eyes of the unredeemed. See, the unredeemed world in which we live as pilgrims and exiles is enslaved to Satan's spirit of rebellion and insubordination. And nothing grabs the attention of the, of the lost more than the disarmingly powerful testimony of a transformed and submissive life. According to 1 Peter 2 and 3, this is the first step to effective everyday evangelism, is living a life of stunning submissiveness. And because it's so important, Peter takes his time on explaining to us what it looks like in verses 13 through 17, and we've been taking our time with it as well. At the beginning of verse 13, we looked at the command, the motive, and the extent of submission, right? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Last week, we looked at the end of verse 13 into verse 14, where we saw the example of submission, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or as governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. That was a good time. Well, today... In verse 15, we're going to consider this morning the purpose of submission. And then next week, finish off this introduction on evangelism with the principle of submission in verses 16 through 17. So the command, motive, extent, example, purpose, and principle of stunning submissiveness, the beginning step in evangelism 101, everyday evangelism. So with that in mind, let's look at 1 Peter Chapter 2, and for context, I always like going back to verse 11, so I'm going to do it. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Leads right into verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or, as to, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Verse 16. Live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. 
This is the Word of God whose mercy is great and who gives us life according to His rules. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the opportunity we have this morning to open up Your Word, to be able to read it and understand it, that it is accessible to us. We might study it and grow thereby. Father, we thank You that we have Your Spirit who leads us in the truth, who helps us to understand the things that are freely given to us by You. And we pray this morning that Your Spirit would teach us, that You would open our eyes to behold the truth, and that You would open up our hearts to embrace it by faith that leads to obedience. Father, I pray that You would help us to be about this great task of reaching the lost and proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And I pray, Father, that You would work in our lives so that how we live would underline the Gospel message, not undermine it. May the world know why we are here and what we're about and who we worship. Give us grace, Father. Change our hearts. Make us humble to follow closely after You. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So after presenting the command, motive, extent, and example of the type of submission that's essential to everyday evangelism, Peter then unveils for us in verse 15 the purpose of submission. The purpose of submission, and that's this, verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So why ought we as Christians to show the level of stunning submissiveness that Peter's just described in the previous two verses? Why should we do that? As long as they're not commanding what God forbids, or forbidding what God commands, why should we arrange ourselves in order under the institutions that God has given us, even if it means to an emperor and a governor who has the purpose of government, mentioned at the end of verse 14, completely flipped upside down? Why should we show stunning submissiveness to people in government who are like that? Quite simply, because this is the will of God. Being subject to our governing authorities is God's will. And God's will is what we as Christians long to live for. As Peter said, and we saw it in our scripture reading this morning, later on in chapter 4, verse 2, we are to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. It's the heartbeat of every believer. We as Christians, we as creatures, exist for one reason, to do the will of our Creator. And that is doubly true for those of us who are new creations in Christ Jesus. We exist to do the will of our Father in heaven. Ah, you say, but that's the thing. What is God's will? I remember thinking of that question quite a bit when I was growing up, increasingly so in high school and college. Uh, what is God's will for my life? Was the question I was always asking myself. Well, let me share with you something that has been immensely helpful for me that I wish I had learned a lot earlier. Something that has helped 
to keep me grounded and guided in this issue of God's will. And that is this. God's will for your life. Ready for this? You want to know God's will for your life? Here it is. It's to be saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, and submissive, and all of those things with a thankful heart. That's God's will for your life. That is God's will for your life. Be saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, and submissive, and all of that with a thankful heart. Let me prove that to you. Okay. So first, God's will for you is to be saved. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You want to do God's will this morning, then I call on you to acknowledge your sin before God and cry out in faith for salvation through Jesus Christ. This is the will of God for you. Surrender to Christ's saving sovereignty. It all begins here. It all begins here. To do the will of God, you must repent, you must believe, you must be saved. You must be saved. Second, God's will for your life is for you to be spirit-filled. Ephesians 5, 17 and 18 says this, Do not be foolish, but listen to this. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Well, what is the will of the Lord? Next verse. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit, which we know from the parallel passage over in Colossians 3, verse 16, that to be filled with the Spirit is directly paralleled to having the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. So do you want to do God's will? You've Okay, you say, okay, I've been saved. Well, what's God's will for my life? Okay, now that you've been saved, then yield to the Spirit's conviction and guidance as it is given to you through the Word of God. Through the Word of God. For this is the will of God. You must be saved. You must be spirit-filled. Third, I'm going through this really fast. God's will for your life is to be sanctified. It's to be sanctified. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3 says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification is a fancy word for, for being increasingly set apart from sin unto God. So do you want to do God's will, believer? Then look at your life and do this. Flee youthful passions. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace alongside those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. 2 Timothy 2.22 Because to do the will of God means that your aim must be to be saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, and finally, God's will for your life is for you to be submissive. And that's our passage this morning. 1 Peter 2.15 Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, for this is the will of God. So do you want to do God's will? then as long as they're not commanding what God forbids or forbids what God commands, be subject to the authorities God has put over you. Because to do God's will means to be saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, and submissive. And here's the encouragement for you. Going back to you know when I was thinking in high school and college years. If you follow God's will, and if you acknowledge Him and strive to acknowledge Him in all of these ways that are revealed... He'll direct your steps in all those other ways that are not. As He works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. God's providential will is unfolded through His revealed will. And I wanted to give all of that for context, not because I wanted to go down a rabbit trail about what is God's will. I wanted to put it in context of what are we talking about when we're talking about God's will. 
That context I just gave you actually underlines the importance of Peter's command here to be subject. For Think about it with me this morning. <clears throat> How important is it for a person to be saved? How important is it for a believer to be Spirit-filled? How important is it for a believer to be sanctified and set apart for the service of God? How important then is it for a believer to be subject to his governing authorities? See, it's all, it's all, it's all important. We can't say that God's will is important in one area of our lives and not as important in other areas of our lives. This is the will of God for you, believer, as much as it is your will for you to his will for you to be saved, spirit-filled, and sanctified. This command in 1 Peter 2 15 or 2 uh, 2.13 is, is not optional any more than the others are. We're talking about essential Christianity here. God's will for your life is to be saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, and submissive. And by the way, all of those things with a thankful heart because 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And while that could be a whole other sermon of how, how to be thankful in subjection. Be saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, and submissive, and with a thankful heart, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And you know what, believer? I want to encourage you. That what I just described is possible. You can do it, believer. Jesus Christ ensured by his own life and death that you could do the will of God. That is why he was sent. Christ lived and died so that you could be saved. So that you could be spirit-filled. So that you could be sanctified. And so that you could be submissive. For the Lord's sake, he did it all. He did all that was necessary so that you could do all of God's will. So that you could do exactly what He commands you to do here in this passage. As 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Christ literally died so that you would be saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, and submissive. And to do all of those things with a thankful heart. So why ought we to be subject to every human institution? Because it is God's will that we be submissive. You can't explain it because, well, they're moral leaders and they're just wonderful people, right? Can't say that. You can't say it because, well, they really understand how state government ought to work. Can't say that either. Ultimately, the foundation of a believer's subjection to its governing authorities is because they want to do God's will for the Lord's sake. That's our driving mission and ambition. It is the will of God that we be submissive. Now that captures me at least very powerfully when I study this, that principle, because I hear so many self-proclaimed Christians often try to excuse their disobedience by the will of God. I don't know if you've heard it, but as, pastor, as a pastor, I hear it all the time, right? I don't believe that's what Scripture says. He couldn't mean that because God wants me to be happy. Or, I know that's what Scripture says, but maybe God still wants me to marry this person anyway so that I can lead them to Christ. Or how about this? I don't care what Scripture says. Everything just fell into place. It wouldn't be this easy if it wasn't what? God's will. 
See, so often we try to use the will of God to excuse our disobedience. And that is the opposite of what Peter's teaching here. God's will does not provide an excuse for disobeying and disregarding authority. It eliminates nearly all of them. Nearly all of them. For unless they're commanding what God forbids or forbidding what God commands, mark my words, you cannot be doing God's will while disregarding your parents. Unless they're commanding what God forbids or forbidding what God's commands, you cannot be doing God's will while dishonoring your husband or your wife. Unless they're commanding what God forbids or forbidding what God's commands, you cannot be doing God's will while disdaining your pastors and elders. And unless they're commanding what God forbids or forbidding what God commands, you cannot be doing God's will while disobeying your governing authorities. It's impossible. Because God's will is not found in disregarding, dishonoring, disdaining, or disobeying your ordained authorities. God's will is found nearly all the time in submitting to them. And again, unless they're telling you to disobey God, to leave the path of submission even for a moment is to leave the path of God's revealed will for you altogether. Be subject. This is the will of God for you. And God has a purpose for this submission. So this is the point that Peter writes, verse 15. God has a purpose for this submission given at the end of verse 15. For this is the will of God. Why? So that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Notice, this is the result of stunning submissiveness. It puts to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So the picture being painted here by Peter is, my goodness, such an accurate picture. He's painting a picture that as pilgrims and exiles that are headed towards our heavenly home, we're going to be walking through a world that is filled with foolish people, Foolish people who, out of their ignorance, will speak against us as Christians and followers of Christ. And boy, that's the truth, isn't it? Have you ever noticed that it's usually the people who know the least that often speak the most? (laughs) It's those who are the most ignorant that are usually the loudest, that run their mouths the most, and that asks the fewest questions. Right? It's the child who's barely had their long-term memory kick in that really understands how they ought to be raised by their parents. Right? It's the mom who just gave birth to their first child that is writing hours of advice blogs on child rearing. It's the business grad who just graduated from college that really knows how a business ought to be run. Right? It's the church member who's never been in ministry before that really understands how ministry should work. It's the person who only saw a 60-second soundbite on television that really understands what's going on in government today. We live in a world where the most ignorant are often those who are talking the most. Well, that holds true in the spiritual realm as well. People, if you've looked around at our world today, people who have never read the Bible will tell those who spend hours a week studying it, you're reading it all wrong. People who never have spent time studying the person and teachings of Jesus will tell those who do that's not what Jesus would do. People who have never followed Jesus for themselves will say to those who are, you're following him all wrong. They show their ignorance. And sometimes, unbeknownst to them, they pride themselves in it. You see that word ignorance is agnosia in the Greek. It's literally the word from which we get agnostic. It means without knowledge or ignorant. 
And people, to my absolute bewilderment, have accepted this as a title for themselves. And their main argument is that you can't know whether God truly exists or not. Well, Peter says here, you know what? You can silence that argument, believer. You can silence their agnosticism. You can prove to the critics, undeniably, that God, in fact, does exist. In fact, it is God's will that you do so. It is God's will that you convince them, that you silence them, and that you prove to them that God exists. You say, boy, that sounds great. Sign me up for that, right? How do I do that? How do I silence the ignorance of foolish people? Answer, by doing good. There's the rub. See, we're all about silencing the scoffers, aren't we? We're all about muzzling the mockers, but not the way that God said to go about it. See, this is what we often do when we start hearing foolish claims and foolish assertions by the world around us. You say Chick-fil-A is bigoted? Let's all get together, break down the doors, and order every single menu item off their menu, right? You say Merry Christmas is insensitive? Then we'll focus on boycotting your store or making sure that we wish every single cashier this year a Merry Christmas. You say that we're weak or impotent? Then we're going to focus on creating a majority voting block and crushing you in the next election. You say that we're ignorant or foolish? Then we'll focus on getting PhDs, writing articles, authoring books, and crushing you with our presuppositional arguments in all of our debates. Now listen, I don't think that's what God has in mind here in 1 Peter chapter 2 at all. Now, I need to be very clear. None of those things I just listed are bad. Okay? I love (laughs) Chick-fil-A. I love Christmas. Right? I love talking politics. And I love me some good presuppositional arguments. None of those things are bad. They're just not all that effective, not all that good, at least how God defines it here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. Because if we really want to do the will of God, if our focus is really on bringing to silence the ignorance of foolish people, if our mission is really to lead them to a personal conviction of their need for Christ, if that's our mission, if that's why we understand we are here, then it all begins with doing good. Doing good. Rather than disobeying, deferring. Rather than argumentative, amiable. Rather than protesting, praying. That's how you silence and put a muzzle on foolish men and women who try to run down the gospel. You do good. And when they call you an evildoer, you shut their mouths by showing them what good looks like. You want to beat the cancel culture? You want to win the culture war? And there is one. There is one. But we need to remember as believers, it's done. Not primarily by grabbing hold of the weapons of the world that they want to shove into our hands. It's done by grabbing hold of the weapons that God has already given us as His children. Because if our mission 
is reaching the lost with Jesus Christ. He's given us what we need. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3-5, through For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. In other words, we as pilgrims are waging a war. right? This, this, we live in a world in which spiritual battles are taking place over people's minds and souls. We are waging a war, but we as pilgrims are not to wage a war according to the flesh. Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power. Okay, just pause there for a second. Believer, do you recognize that God has given you weapons to engage in the culture around you that has divine power? Power imbibed by God. Do you understand that? Divine power to do what? Paul says this, to destroy strongholds, the strongest places that Satan has a grip on. To do divine power to destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Divine power to take every thought captive to obey Christ. You have a power. You have weapons that God uses to literally take the mind of a critic and convert it into a mind that thinks Christ's thoughts after Him. How do we know it? Look at the church. It's exactly what God has done with every single one of us. We were once chasing after the course of this world, following after the sons of disobedience, chasing after Satan, and here we are now this morning worshiping Christ. Hearing His Word preached? How did that happen? It's not through fleshly means or weapons, but through the spiritual weapons that God entrusted to some other believer who recognized this is the tool I must use in this person's life. It is true, like lambs sent out into the midst of wolves, we don't have many weapons as believers, but they are powerful. And what are they? Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, 17-18, when after mentioning several defensive pieces of armor, finally says this, he gets to the weapons, <laughs> and he says this, Ephesians 6, 17-18, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. Those are the two weapons by which the Spirit wages spiritual war, for people's souls through us. The two weapons that we as pilgrims have been given to aid in our journey towards heaven, it is the Word of God and it is prayer. As I heard one man say once, the Word of God, with the Word of God we fight for people's souls and with prayer we call down air support. These are our weapons and this is how we fight as pilgrims and exiles in this world for the salvation of the lost. This is how we stand strong in the strength of the Lord and in His might. It's by prayer and proclaiming the Word of God. This is how God chooses to win His greatest battles. I think of, I think of Esther and Mordecai. I fell, I fell behind here. Here we go. I think of uh, Esther and Mordecai and the nation of Israel. The moment they heard that all the Jews were going to be killed. Every last Jew to the man prayed and prayed and prayed. They didn't riot. They didn't rebel. They just prayed and through their prayers, God gave Esther, the appointed believer in a sense, an opportunity to proclaim the truth to power, right? And on the very day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, Esther 9.1 says the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. 
I think of Daniel and his friends the moment they heard that all the wise men were going to be killed because they weren't wise. They were following after foolish arguments of the pagans, right? When they found out that all the wise men were going to be killed because of Nebuchadnezzar's uninterpreted dream, what did Daniel and his friends do? They prayed, they prayed, they prayed. They didn't riot. They didn't rebel. They just prayed and through their prayers, God not only interpreted the dream, but also gave Daniel the opportunity to proclaim the truth. And he and all of his friends were saved. They were delivered. I think of Paul and Silas in the jail. The moment they were beaten and thrown into prison, what did they do in Philippi? They prayed and prayed and prayed. They didn't riot. They didn't rebel. They just prayed and through their prayers, God sent an earthquake and set them all loose. And what did they do? Did they riot then? Did they rebel then? No, they just stayed in stunning submission to the authority that was put over them and their testimony of submission, of prayer, and of doing good in all circumstances was so powerful it opened up an opportunity to proclaim the word of God when the jailer walked up to him saying, something's different about you. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And he and all of his household were saved. This is how God chooses to win his greatest battles. It is not through the weapons of the flesh, but through the weapons of the Spirit. It is through the prayer and the word of God. It is through doing what is good. It is through the power of a transformed life. As Spurgeon said, more history is made in the prayer closet than in the national cabinets. Do you believe that? This is how God chooses to win his greatest battles through prayer and the word of God, through doing what is good, through the power of a transformed life. Think about it. Think about it with me. How did God silence the foolish pride of a man called Nebuchadnezzar? It is through the trans well, it's through a divine miracle, and through the transformed testimonies. Uh, Eating grass will do that to you. It was through the transformed testimonies as well of four young men named Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who courageously did good and did the will of God. How did God silence the foolish self-righteousness of a man named Saul? It was through the transformed testimony of a man named Stephen. And how did God silence, how will God silence the foolish ignorance of those around us in our world today? It is through the transformed testimonies of our own lives as we live lives that demonstrate the grace of God, stunning submissiveness, It's when we live lives devoted to doing good. Let's never forget this. Please, most self-proclaimed Christians are more willing to march on Washington than they are to come to prayer meeting. And the state of the American church and its ineffectiveness in reaching the lost shows it. Again, I'm not saying one is bad. I'm just saying God directs the other one as being good. We need to throw off, as a church, our addiction to Saul's unwieldy armor and take hold of the weapons that God has given us. For the sake of the lost souls around us, would the church in our day cry out like David, give me my stone and sling? Give me the weapons God has given me. 
Give me the word and prayer. It's all I need. For while they may come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, I come to them in the name of the Lord Almighty, and by the strength of His might, I can win the victory. This battle is the Lord's, and by faith, these walls of Jericho fall. This is the will of God that you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. How? By doing good. What's our mission? It's to point people to Christ. How do we do that? By living lives that do good. So I say again, the most effective tool you have for evangelism next to the Word of God itself is the power of a transformed and submissive life, a life that is devoted to doing good for the Lord's sake. And as I was studying this week and being convicted in my own heart, may God give us such a conviction to do such a work in our hearts in our day. How many of us have loved ones or dear ones that are wandering and falling and dying in sin. And Satan has us distracted so often by the wrong mission. And then even if we have the right mission, the wrong methods. He has us distracted by chasing after worldly weapons and solutions that are not fitting for pilgrims that are bound for heaven. Beloved, do you have a loved one, a family member or a friend that does not know the Savior that right now is turning from Him, then I urge you to fight for them. Fight for them with all you've got and remember your mission. It's not to convert them to a certain political side. It's to convert them to Jesus Christ. Remember your mission and remember your method. Fight for their soul. Fight for their soul with the Word of God in prayer. I encourage all of you, if you are free on Wednesday nights, come to the trenches and pray with us. Bring that soul up in prayer. That's a burden in your heart right now among your brothers and sisters and we will pray with you and we will keep on praying. Let's do good. Let's do good and pray together that God would tear down these strongholds and deliver these souls as He gives us opportunities to proclaim His truth. And if there are struggles that you're facing in life and struggles that seem insurmountable and unending, don't stumble around with the tactics of this world. Cast that off and come and receive the Word and pray. Because nothing's changed. God still chooses to win His greatest battles by the proclamation of the Word and prayer. And by fighting with the weapons that God has given us, by doing good in this way, we can put to silence and bring to salvation the souls of those around us. May God make us faithful to this mission and this method for the Lord's sake. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We'll have to look at the final point next week, but for now, this is the Word of God from 1 Peter 2.15, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedient in the fervent care of one another and of the proclamation of the truth and prayer for the lost until every mouth is stopped at the coming of the Lord in glory. Till that day, let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for Your Word. Thank you for how it cuts.
and hurts and challenges us and heals us, empowers us and encourages us and calls us to right action. Father, this week I pray that you would help us not to be distracted by some other earthly mission. I pray, Father, that you would keep our hearts and minds on task, that we are here to declare the truth and be used by you in the deliverance of lost souls. Father, I pray that you would help us to be faithful in doing good towards those around us who do not know you. May they see in our lives the stunning grace and submissiveness that was characteristic of Christ's own life. And as we do good, and as we pray, and as we proclaim the Word, Father, I pray that You would use us to bring many souls to the Great Shepherd, to the Great Shepherd and to their salvation. Humble us, Father, and make us faithful in this regard for Your name's sake. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.